following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I feel like the Spirit's already working, working in my heart at least, so we're going to pray that He will do the same now in His Word. We're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 37 again, and then go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, I, I do not feel qualified or capable of speaking from your word this morning, given the content, given the, the nature of the truth we are about to see. It is weightier than I could bear on my own, and I, am, I could not do it justice. Um, 
And so I come this morning and ask, as we have asked so many times, and we will continue to ask for the rest of time, that your spirit be with us, that, that you fill us with your spirit this morning, that he will enlighten our eyes and, and our hearts to understand, because the reality is, is apart from you working in us, we, we can't. We just can't. We can't do the things that you've called us to do. We can't even understand them. And so, Spirit, please work. Please move. Fill me. Jesus, speak through me this morning. I'm nothing. You are everything. We, we all desperately in here need the same thing, and that is you, Jesus. That is no trite statement, no Sunday school answer. It is the, it is the heartbeat that you are all we have. You Jesus, you are all we have, and so we, we come now and we, we plead for you. Speak to us through your word, convict us, encourage our hearts to pursue you, enable us to do it. Jesus, we find our, our fullness, our all in you this morning. We acknowledge that at the outset today, and we will acknowledge it at the end. And so we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is part two of a two-part sermon, which we began last week looking at this passage of Scripture here in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 37. And as I began last time, I gave us all a word of the day. Does anyone remember the word of the day? Conundrum. Very good, okay? Conundrum was our word of the day. Conundrum is a confusing or difficult problem or, or a question and not only did I define conundrum for, for you, but I also gave you an example of a conundrum. I gave you this picture here of five points free will Baptist church. And now, if I may speak personally for a moment, uh, it's interesting sometimes getting feedback from people on various components of sermons, uh, messages that I preach, things they say, things they ask. And sometimes I get more feedback on things than others. And this was one of those pictures that surprisingly, I thought, it was surprising to me, gave me quite a lot of feedback this week. Uh, from immediately after the service all the way through yesterday, I kept getting questions, comments about this. Some of you got the joke because I did not explain it at all last week. I said, if you didn't get it, too bad for you. And if you did, it was great. But uh, even yesterday, I was told that a lot of you didn't get it. So... So I'm going to help you just a little bit with this particular conundrum, okay? So just so you can understand what's going on here, without, without giving too much detail, because we could spend not just the rest of today, but the rest of many days answering this question, when most people who have any knowledge of church history and of theology see the words five points, they think of a particular man, a man by the name of John Calvin, who was one of the reformers, lived in the 1500s in Switzerland. And Calvin is known for many things, but one of the things, he, not for his genes, it wasn't like his brother Klein and him that went in on that. Yeah, that was bad. That wasn't in the notes. Uh, this is why I have notes. Uh, he's known for many things, but most people most uh, associate with him five specific letters, five points of theology, even though he himself never articulated these five points in this way. This actually came almost 100 years after his death, where people took some of his teaching and tried to systematize it, or whatever, that word. So, uh, and, and these are the five points that he was known for, total depravity, unconditional election, 
limited atonement, irresistible grace, preservation of the saints. If you don't know what those are, I'm not explaining those today either. Made a little acronym called TULIP by which people remember it. So when you typically hear the word five points or the phrase five points, people think of, of John Calvin, which is why this picture was funny because the concepts of, of John Calvin and his five points are not often associated with free will Baptist churches. That's the conundrum, okay? So I, I was confused by this as well when I saw it. Uh, and, and I think to help you understand the picture, you actually don't need to look at the name of the church. You actually need to look at its address. The address will help you quite a bit because you'll see it's at Highway 32 North in Washington, North Carolina. It doesn't even give you a number. It's just like you should know that somewhere on Highway 32 North, there is a church by the name of Five Points Free Will Baptist Church. Now, if you're not from North Carolina, you may have a little bit of struggle with this. I am. I was actually born about 30 minutes outside of Washington, so I, I am well familiar with Washington. Uh, it is a country town. It is a hick town. It's on the banks of where the Tar River empties into the Pamlico River. It is not, and I can say this as a North Carolinian by birth, uh, it is not the kind of place where you think many people would even know what the five points of Calvinism are or if they even knew that John Calvin's a person. So... I knew that something was up with the picture, so I did what all people do when they don't know something. We turned to the all-knowing Google to see if Google could help. So I Googled the name, Five Points Free Will Baptist Church, and nothing comes up other than like a yellow page listing. They have no website, which I wasn't shocked by. They have nothing. <laughs> they have nothing. But what did come up was a Google map picture, which I will show to you here. It's kind of hard to see. It's a little town called Five Points, and these are the five points of Five Points Real Baptist Church. <laughs> Conundrum solved, all right? <laughs> well, uh, much like we just handled uh, that conundrum, Jesus here in the text we read has been handling some of his own. Here in the text, we've seen various opponents of Jesus come to him with different conundrums that are all designed to get him in trouble. In other words, they're asking him some very specific questions that they think, no matter how he answers them, yes or no, will put him in a place where he will, he will say something that will give them ammunition to attack him, arrest him, kill him, that kind of idea. And there are three of these types of conundrums here in the passage we just read. And after Jesus has processed, handled these three conundrums. He then turns the tables on them and poses a conundrum back to them, which they are not able to answer. And we looked at the first of these four conundrums last week. The first one is found, if you look in your text, at verses 13 to 17. And this is what I have labeled as a political conundrum. And I'm just applying labels, so if you don't like them, you don't have to keep them. But, but in that particular situation, a group of Pharisees, which is the main religious party, of Jesus's day, and a group of Herodians, which are the only political party of Jesus's day, they come to Jesus to ask him whether or not it is biblically lawful for the people of Israel, for him and all the others around them, to pay taxes to Caesar. And this is very unpopular with the people. They are funding the Gentile occupation of God's land, so they don't like this. They think it's wrong. And so if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful because our government says we have to pay this, then he will alienate himself from or discredit himself with the people whom he is trying to reach in their minds. 
However, if he says, no, it is not lawful, then he sounds like he's being disloyal to Caesar. And all of a sudden now he's become potentially a renegade or a revolutionary and the Herodians are there to hear it. Jesus gives them neither answer. He simply asks for a coin. And when they hand it to him, he says, who put their name and their picture on this? And so they answer back, the right answer is Caesar, Tiberius. Caesar put his name and picture on this, and so Jesus says to them, well, if Caesar took all the trouble to put his name and picture on this little piece of silver, then you should give it back to him to fulfill the purposes for which he made it. And then likewise, and this was the kicker, you should also give back to God the things that are God's. So what did God put his image and likeness on? (laughs) Us. So give those back to God then as well to fulfill the purposes for which he made us. And it's a brilliant answer. Conundrum number one has been solved. The second one we saw is in verses 18 to 27. And this was a theological conundrum. Another religious party. Remember, there's more than one religious party functioning at the time. Another religious party, the Sauces. The Sadducees, you had to be here last week for that one. Sadducees came to him with this elaborate hypothetical situation about these seven brothers who, because of the practice of leveret marriage, and if you don't know what that was, listen to the sermon from last week, who, because of that practice, all, in turn, as each one dies childless, marry the same woman. And the question that they pose to him is, well, in the resurrection then, when all eight of them are alive, whose wife will she be? You know, ha ha, we got you, right? Because now they're all alive and she's got to be the wife of one of them in the resurrection, right? Because she was the wife of all of them in turn here. So which one will it be? How's that going to work out? And you see they're assuming that resurrection life will work and look exactly like mortal life works and looks today. But, But they're wrong about this. And Jesus tells them this specifically in relation to marriage, when he says to them there in the text that in the resurrection, you're not going to be married. In the resurrection, you're going to be like the angels who themselves are also not married. And then he goes on to refute their denial of the resurrection by pointing out from scripture that God is not the God of corpses. He's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And so he says to them, and I love that quote, they are quite wrong, right? He just lays it out for them. So this is where we were last week. And if you weren't here last Sunday, you You really need to go back and listen for the two to to make sense, to go fully together, because we're going to jump now right back into where we left off to our third conundrum here in verses 28 to 34, and I'm calling this one a practical or a legal conundrum. Practical or a legal conundrum. And this conundrum is a little bit different. In this conundrum, rather than the question being posed to him by a group of people, this time it's posed to him by an individual. And also, in this particular case, at least the way it comes across in the text, it doesn't sound as premeditated as the first two were. I think in the first two cases, you see these people, these groups coming to Jesus with a specific question in mind. They knew what they were going to ask when they showed up. This one kind of has a feel of being a little more impromptu. but, But regardless, let's look at the text. Mark tells us that one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And let's just stop and make sure we're clear about two words here. First of all, let's just remind ourselves about the scribes. Who are the scribes? These are the the biblical scholars of Jesus' day. These are the guys whose entire job is to know the scriptures. You would think the priests would have that job, right? But the priest's job is not to, to necessarily know everything about the scriptures. The priest's job is to to be serving in the temple, to be doing all the stuff that has to be done in the service of God. The scribes have given themselves over to to the constant study of Scripture, and most of them, we know from history, were associated with the Pharisee party. 
And the reason is because the Pharisees, remember, were the religious conservatives. They were the ones who took the scriptures most literally, most, most conservatively. And so these scribes, as people who also give themselves to the scriptures, tended to associate themselves with this group. So that's who the scribes are. The second word I want to make sure you're clear about is the word them. Who's the, the them that they're listening to? Well, it's Jesus versus the Sadducees. They're, as they're walking up, they're coming up into this prior conversation that we looked at last time between Jesus and the Sadducees, and this guy hears how Jesus answers them and that he answered them well. And when you read that phrase, I think you're tempted to kind of put a positive spin on that. It's like, oh, well, he likes Jesus' answer to these guys. Like, he likes what's going on here, but I, I don't really think that's the case. I think if there's any approval here, it's in the fact that Jesus has basically just embarrassed the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along too well, okay? They're like Bears and Packers fans, all right? So I say that as a Bears fan who's going to watch a game later today. Um, I, I think they're approving of it in that kind of way. And, and it's almost, if I go back to the, the football analogy, I doubt the Bears will win today, but that's beside the point. Um, do you know the only thing better than watching the Bears beat the Packers? It's watching some other team beat the Packers, Right? Like the enemy of your enemy is your friend kind of a situation. I think there's some joy here in this guy watching his enemies be embarrassed or defeated in front of him. And I think this is the sense in which this man is now coming to Jesus. Clearly, Jesus is a man who knows a thing or two about God's word. He knows how to answer some questions. He knows how to put the Sadducees in their place. And so he asks them a very unique question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, as you and I stop and try to think about that question, I, I think that we struggle understanding the significance of what is really a very simple question. Because for this guy, he, he could have definitely, he would have understood the significance. I, I think the people who are around listening would have definitely understood the significance. But I think, I think most of us don't really understand the significance of this question. And I'll show you that you don't understand it by asking what is also a very, very simple question that this guy would have nailed in a heartbeat. Anyone around him probably would have nailed pretty quickly, if not known it right off the bat. But only the most ardent Bible trivia aficionado in this room, I can't say that word very well, aficionado in this room will probably know the answer to this question. Here it is. How many laws, commands, excuse me, were there in the Old Testament law? Now, if you know it, don't answer it. Just think about it for a moment. If you don't know it, then just sit there and pretend like you do know it. So how many commands are in the law? And if you're not clear on what the law is, the law is the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the Pentateuch. That makes up the, the Old Testament law. This is what the, the scribes would be experts in. I'll give you a hint. It's not 10, okay? We typically just talk about the 10 commandments as if that's all. Oh, there's only 10. All right, that's easy, right? You, got, you know them, but understand the 10 are special. The 10 are first, but there are many more commands that come after. I'll give you the answer in case you don't know. It's 613 by the common count. There's some variations. Some of you are like, oh, okay. Uh, 248 of them are positive. 365 are negative. That's a thou shalt not for each day. Uh, some are considered to be weightier. Some are considered to be lighter. And yet they're all considered to be equally binding on the people who are under them. And these scribes did nothing all day but sit around and study these things and talk about these things and debate these things and argue these things specifically with how they should be applied or lived out in everyday life. 
And my favorite example here, it always has been, probably always will be, is the Sabbath commands, because they're the easiest to pick on in a, in a sense. You know, the, the Sabbath command is very, very simple. Do not work, right? It's easy. Do not work. But there's a question inherent in that that you may not think about at first, and that is, well, what exactly is work? And so these scribes are sitting around studying the scriptures and trying to put things together to answer these questions. Well, if we walk a mile, is that work? Well, that's definitely work. Well, what if it's only three quarters of a mile? What if it's a half? What if it's a quarter? What if it's 100 yards? What, what can we do that will designate work? And not Because we want to obey God's word. We want to keep the commands. We don't want to break anything. So, so that's what these guys do. That's why I call them biblical scholars. They're studying, trying to think about things and answer questions, some of which are good and some of which were not. These were the legal experts of Jesus' day. And not legal in the civil sense of the word legal, but legal in the sense of the biblical law. This is, these are the guys you would turn to to rightly, fully understand and live out God's law. And so for this guy to ask Jesus which commandment is the most important commandment of all, is far more significant than I think many of us understand when we first read the question. This is a question of utmost legal and practical significance, not just for this man, but for many of the people listening as well. And whereas, uh, no doubt, this question had been long debated by the scribes because they debated everything to the nth degree, whereas they had probably talked about this forever and ever, Jesus answers the question immediately, without hesitation, Without debate, without delay, he says, the most important command is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, if you know your Ten Commandments, you can answer this question, which of the ten is this? You got nine more to try. It's zero. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not, it's not found there in what we would refer to as the Decalogue. It actually comes from a completely different portion of the Pentateuch, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the passage that was read earlier this morning, verses 4 and 5, as Moses is rehearsing in the people's ears the necessity to follow God's commands, to follow all of God's commands. And having called them to follow all of God's commands, he utters two foundational statements for the people of Israel. The first one is this foundational statement of theology that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. He calls him by his personal covenant name and he declares him to be God and to be God alone as in there is no other. He alone is God. No other God is true. The second is this foundational statement of what then our response should be to this one true and only God. We should love him. Completely, totally, with every aspect of our being. You know, some people like to take these words that Jesus uses here, that Moses uses in uh, Deuteronomy 6, this heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they like to define them as in, these are the ways that you, in which you need to love God. As, and, and that's not necessarily bad, I just don't think it's necessary. Because he's just saying to us to love God completely. Love him completely. Which, when you think about it, is the only way we love at all, if there's really truly love in the first place. You know, <laughs> I was thinking about um, John Legend's wedding song. You know, all of me, 
loves all of you. I'll sing it to you later, honey. Uh, <laughs> she hates when I do that. Imagine that song sung this way. Part of me loves some of you. <laughs> it wouldn't be the same, would it? It probably would not have been as popular. Uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon at all. Uh, <laughs> me singing that song doesn't quite go together, right? It reminds me of a time that uh, Jamie and I, early on in marriage, we, we were leaving for uh, our, our Sunday morning worship service at the church we were attending at this point. And uh, we turned on the radio, and at the time, I don't know if, uh, I know two of these stations still exist. At the time, there were only three Christian radio stations on, on the radio. And it was uh, K-Love, BBN, and this network called the Oasis Network, which was some kind of weird, charismatic, Pentecostal thing. Anyway, so I would just flip through them just to see what was on, and I turned on the Oasis Network. And lo and behold, what song is playing at the moment I turn it on? It's, um, uh, oh, his Eyes on the Sparrow. Thank you. I just lost it. I totally blanked out. That's why I don't sign my notes. His Eyes on the Sparrow by Jimmy Durante. His eye is on the sparrow. <laughs> I'm like, you can't have Jimmy Durante singing that song. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for me to sing this one either. Back to the sermon. Uh, True love, even at the human level, doesn't work in this partial kind of way. Like, we get that, right? You don't spouses, you would never say to your, your husband, your wife, hey, you know, I mostly love you. I partially love you. You would never say to your children or to your parents or to brothers or sisters or even to friends when you actually love them. And sometimes we say the words, we love you, and we don't really mean them. But we would never say to them, I mostly love you, I partially love you. You either love someone completely or you don't love them at all. You may love them imperfectly, you may mess up a lot, but, but you either love them completely or you don't love them at all. And that's what both Moses and Jesus are saying here about God himself. You have to love him completely. That's the only right response to who God is. Now, now hold that thought because Jesus then goes on to answer a question that wasn't asked specifically, but will complete the man's thought and give the full answer that needs to be given. The second answer, he says, or second command is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and just Again, pause, where does that come from? It's not from the Ten Commandments. It's from Leviticus 19. And it's the concluding statement in the series of commands where, where God is telling the people about, talking to the people about how they should treat one another. So, you know, uh, commands like harvesting crops. You know, when you harvest the crops in your fields, don't, don't take everything. Leave some behind for the poor so they can come in because otherwise they won't have anything to eat. Just think about them. Or, or, you know, if you have a worker, pay him the day that he works so that he doesn't have to wait. Don't hold his money overnight. Just take care of him. If you're a judge in a situation, don't show partiality to either the rich or to the poor, but judge based on what is truly right. It's a whole series of, of commands like this. And at the end, God summarizes all of those commands with this, this statement that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And let's face it, we love ourselves a lot. <laughs> I mean... We don't want to bring harm on ourselves. We don't, we don't want to do anything that would, would mis, uh, mistreat ourselves or, you know, we wouldn't do ourselves wrong. And this is the, the text that Jesus is quoting. And so he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. In other words, he's not saying that the other 611 don't matter as if you no longer have to do them. That's not what he's saying to the guy. He's just simply saying that these two commands, if obeyed, would take care of all the others. Just, 
you'd be done. I mean, I wouldn't have to tell you do not steal. If you truly love God with all your heart and you didn't want to sin against him and you loved your neighbor as yourself and you didn't want to harm him, if you really did those two things, there'd be no need for do not steal. All the other commands would be totally taken care of by that. So if we're motivated, controlled by love for God and others, stealing is not something we even have to worry about, right? And the scribe gets it. That's the crazy. The scribe gets it and he agrees. The scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this last little statement here is the one that should really surprise us the most because this is a scribe who's saying it. It's a Pharisee who's saying these words most likely and And yet, he gets this basic premise of the Old Testament law that in the end, as we have said over and over and over and over, God was never ultimately concerned with the offerings and sacrifices of animals in the temple every day. It was never the ultimate concern. They they were means to an end, so to speak, if you think of it in that way. You know, they're meant to be expressions of love towards God or expressions of repentance, of of contrition over sin. They're expressions of dependence uh, on him for forgiveness and really for everything. They were a means to an end. They were not the end themselves. And most people listening to Jesus, almost everyone that we've seen him interact with, I think from an official leadership kind of perspective, most people don't get this. They think that the end is the sacrifices. Their focus is on the temple and what goes on there. And when Jesus talks about doing away with the temple, they get all up in arms. Most people don't get it, but this guy does. He recognizes that what God has really wanted from his people all along was, was their complete love of him, which would, of course, also be expressed in their love for others. And, and this kind of love is greater than all these other things that occur in the temple every single day. And Mark tells us, that when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. The, the guy is getting it. He's almost there, but he's still missing something. And while Mark doesn't say it, my, my assumption from the text here is that the thing he's missing is Jesus. Because he's part of this group that has come here to challenge Jesus and to trap him in his words. And so even though he's acknowledging God's truth, he seems to be part of a crowd that is not accepting God's son. And he's not far, but he's not there. Our final conundrum comes here in verses 35 to 37. And we'll come back to this idea in a moment, but it comes in these last few verses. And this is a messianic conundrum. That's what I'm referring to this one as. Because Jesus is now turning the tables on his questioners, and he has become the questioner, and he now puts a conundrum to them. In verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let me make sure you understand the conundrum. The scribes had rightly determined that the Old Testament prophecies, that the 
or prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, would come from the line of David. Okay, They had read the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies. They knew that this was what was going to happen. Whoever this Messiah would be, he would be a descendant of King David, Israel's great king. And yet, when David spoke of this coming Messiah, one of his own descendants, in Psalm 110, which is where this is from, he doesn't refer to him as my son, but rather as my Lord. Not the Lord said to my son or to my descendants, sit at the right hand of my throne until I make your enemies, uh, put your enemies under your feet. It's the Lord said to my Lord. You hear David taking ownership of this one? It's this, this coming descendant of mine, he will be my Lord. And this is not a normal way of, of talking or thinking in ancient Israel because typically a descendant is considered to be lesser than the ancestor. So if I'm thinking out to you know, my great-grandchildren, I'm not putting them above me. I'm thinking of them as being less than me, particularly if I'm someone like David. If we're talking about a guy like David, who's the greatest king Israel's ever known, then, then clearly there's no descendant of his that will be greater. And so Jesus puts the question to them, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, the, the, the assumption of the people was that when the Messiah came, he would restore Israel's greatness and, and really reestablish David's kingdom and bring everything back to like it was with, with David and, and Israel be a great kingdom like it was with David. And you know, there's a lot of emphasis on David as if David's the pinnacle of everything. David's all that's going to be, and we're going to get back to that point. And yet when David looked ahead and saw the coming of the Messiah, he saw something greater than himself, something greater than his kingdom. And Jesus is asking them, well, how is that possible? <laughs> and apparently they have no answer. The crowds love the answer he's given and the questions he's asking, but the religious leaders themselves are silent. And Mark doesn't solve that conundrum for us. I think, I guess, I assume that he's leaving it up to us to answer for ourselves based on everything that we have seen and learned so far about Jesus in his writing. I mean, how could a descendant of David, the great king of Israel, be actually greater than David, the, the great king of Israel? Well, it's really quite simple, isn't it? It's because, as we've said so many times along the way, this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. We've been saying that over and over and over again through Mark's gospel, that, that he's far more than a man. He is God come in human form. And this was the part of the, the prophecies of the Messiah that somehow the leaders and the people didn't see. I mean, it's there. It's there. But they either didn't or couldn't or wouldn't see it. They knew God was sending a Messiah. They knew that he was sending a Savior, a king, to establish a new kingdom, but they totally did not see that that Messiah, that Savior, that king would be God himself. They're expecting another servant. Um, they didn't realize it was time to send his son, as the parable we saw a couple weeks ago um, pointed out. It's not that this information wasn't visible in the Old Testament. It was there, in case in point, is Psalm 110. David himself, as he is writing in the Spirit, he gets it. He understands that this coming descendant of his, this coming Messiah, is not going to be unlike, or it's not going to be like any of his other descendants. He's going to have lots of descendants, but there is one who will be different. He would be the Lord. He would be David's Lord. David establishes his own loyalty to this coming descendant. The divine identity of the Messiah was evident in the Old Testament but many did not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. And you see that same problem, I think, with the, the interchange between Jesus and the scribes as well, right? 
Jesus affirms that the foundation of all the commands in the Old Testament is a love for God, complete love for God, and a love for others. Everything else is going to rest on those two commands. And the scribe agrees. He, unlike so many others who had listened to Jesus at this point, he gets this detail that God is more interested in our hearts than, than in, he was in their sacrifices, and yet even he doesn't have the, the eyes to see and the ears to hear the rest of it. Jesus says that you know, he's not far from the kingdom. And at first, at first when I read those words, I thought, well, that's a good thing, right? I mean, he's not far. He's like almost there. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how sad those words really are. He's close, but he is not there. He understands some truth, but he's still missing some things. And it reminded me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people who obviously know a lot about God. And they're doing a lot for God. I mean, they're prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works. I've never done any of that. So, I mean, they're doing more than most of us in many respects, and yet somehow, in the midst of all they're knowing, in the midst of all they're doing, they never actually knew God. Or, God never knew them, as Jesus says it here. It sounds to me like they're not far from the kingdom of God, but <laughs> they're not there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, the question then, of course, is what is his will, right? What is it that he wants from us? To sin less? Be more righteous? Is that what he wants? No, not really. He wants us to love him completely. To love our neighbors as ourselves. This, this concept is unchanged from the Old Testament. This is not just a word to Israel. This is a word to us. I mean, just listen to these passages. I just took a sampling. Just a sampling. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't do both. And God wants your love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, So now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But what's the greatest? It's love. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, a passage I have loved for a long time and have quoted many times. Jesus walking out to the garden saying to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And right there in these verses, and I'm just going to put two of them up here. First John chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 12. In these two verses is the answer to the question that I hope a lot of you are asking in your minds and hearts right now. And that question is, how? I mean, how do we completely love God? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Because you have tried and you can't do it. And you're frustrated and you're aggravated and you're discouraged and you're disappointed and you're like, how? Well, without being trite and without being funny in any way, the answer is Jesus. I mean, just look at verse 9. You see here that God showed his love to us. He made it manifest, right? He showed his love to us by sending his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. In other words, it's, it's not just simply a reference to eternal life. I think when we read that, that phrase, we think of it, oh, well, someday we'll have eternal life. He's not talking just about eternal life. Yes, that's, that's part of it, but it's, it's more than that. It's living through Jesus now. Not just then, now. If we're in Christ, we, ha we have died. We're told that. Do you believe it? If we're in Christ, we have died, and we now live through Jesus, and he lives through us. My life is not my own. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me, Paul, there in Galatians chapter 2. In verse 12, John makes it even clearer. No one has ever seen God. He, he's, he's a spirit. He's invisible. Yet if we love one another, God abides lives in us and his love, his love is perfected in us. In other words, this kind of love comes only as God, as Jesus lives in us and perfects his love in us. It's not about me loving more or differently. It's about me dying and Jesus loving through me. And I know for some of you that's a hard concept to understand, but I'm becoming more and more and more convinced that if there is an aspect of theology and Christian living that the church has missed, maybe I shouldn't put it on the church, if that, that I have missed, it is this, our complete and utter dependence on Jesus for everything, not just for salvation. Hopefully we agree on that point, but it's not just for salvation. It is for all of life that I don't need Jesus to change me. We use that terminology without thinking about it. We don't need Jesus to change us or to help us be different so I can live better or differently. I just need to die and Jesus to live through me because I'm, I'm not fixable. There's nothing good in me that is fixable. Only Jesus can change, can be something different than who I am. And this comes as we walk by faith in the Spirit. And you say, okay, well then where do I start? What do I do then? I'm still even maybe a little confused, but what do I do? Can I give you an answer that, again, is not meant to be trite and is not meant to be funny? You pray. You pray. I'm just letting that sink in. It's no cop-out answer, no push-it-off kind of answer. You pray. You pray to our Father that he fills you with his spirit so that Jesus will live his life through you. 
you ask Jesus to love the Father through you because he's the only one who perfectly loves the Father. You ask the Son to love the Father through you and to love others through you. You pray that he destroys, destroys the old man. We're not into to fixing what's behind. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go back and fix it. We're not trying to renovate a house. We want to demolish it and put something new in its place. You pray that he destroys that old man in you who wants to love self in this world more than God or others. And if you don't have the desire or the, the mind to understand or any of those things, any of the things I just said, then you pray that God gives you that desire. And you don't stop praying it. No trite answer. Not a cop-out. It is the only way. And you won't be perfect at it. <laughs> and you won't... You won't see instant change and victory, but you will have confidence. And I'll give you a reason why you can have confidence, why this, this application I'm giving you is no trite response. It's because of two very precious promises that my heart has clung to, and I want your heart to cling to them as well. Philippians 2.13, that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You want to know why you don't have the desire? <laughs> God has to put the desire in you. He has to will it in you. He has to work in you. It's God who does it. You play a part. You're, you, we're told to work it. Right before that, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for your good pleasure, or for his good pleasure. You, you, you come and you just beg God, God, I don't have the desire and I don't know what to do. Will you will and work in me? Pray that. And at the same time, cling to 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15, that this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, and he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And sometimes people like try to you know, play that out in weird ways, and they don't really know what God's will is. I'm telling you what God's will is. God's will is for you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself. And so, it's God's will for you to love him completely. Love your neighbors yourself. And so come, ask in confidence that he works in you to both will, to desire, and to work for his good pleasure through his son and through his spirit. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we are a, a stiff-necked people. We are a, a selfish people. We love ourselves and we love this world so much and we have tried at times to love you. Often we, we forget even though that part, we, we try to do things for you as if that's what you want. You want us to sin less or be more righteous. And yes, those things come and they're a part of it. But, but ultimately, those are all covered under these two overarching commands that we love you completely and love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus, you have not changed that for us. You, you, you have actually enabled it. We can't love the Father on our own, Jesus. I am too in love with myself to ever do that, too in love with this world. Destroy the old man in me. Jesus, love the Father through me, please. And at times when I don't even understand fully what that means and how to apply it in situations, I, I cling to you in faith then, just asking that you live through us, through me, my my wife, my children, this church, we are your body, we are your people. And Jesus, if we don't have you, we have nothing. 
Our hope is not just in some by and by time. It's now. You didn't just give us eternal life in the future. You, have, you are our life now, and we have forgotten this somehow. And when it comes to loving others, we fail <laughs> so much, sometimes purposely, sometimes accidentally. Will you love the, uh, the others in our lives through us? Because you, only you know perfectly how to do that. We want to be willing workers. We want to, to fall down on our knees and beg because the only source of power for this is prayer. It's the Spirit working in and through us. And for those in here this morning who don't even have the desire to do the things we're talking about, will you at least give them that? Just work in them to will for your good pleasure. Give them the desire and the heart and then work it out in their lives. We want to be a people who are known not for our great acts of righteousness. We're not trying to rebuild a law of our own. We want to be a people who are known as being fully dependent on you, that you are all we have both for salvation and for the rest of our lives. And so we come and we ask you, Jesus, to live in and through us this week as your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.